Once again, Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Thank you. We're just trying to transition here. I uh, was not planning to do our Haftarah, but our annual reader it has COVID, and uh, we miss her. But I figured if I did it, then I would just be a placeholder for when she comes back next year. We'll go with that. But fortunately, chanting that text, which, as I said, is an abridged section, gave me the opportunity to reinsert a section that we often skip over when we chant the Haftarah on Rosh Hashanah morning from the Song of Hannah. It's a triumphant prayer that she offers after giving birth. And in it, she imagines a future messianic age where the poor sit with princes and good triumphs over evil. All of which is beautiful, except that, as we know, that's kind of hard to believe in. Traditional Jewish practice requires many jolts to our normal belief systems. Most of us don't believe that the stories in our ancient texts actually happened. We struggle to believe in the theology of the prayer book or, for that matter, in the God to whom we direct our prayers. Breaking our norm is our norm on these holidays, something we've gotten used to as American Jews. But there's another way in which I feel like celebrating Rosh Hashanah this year, this year specifically, requires a little more suspension of our disbelief, which is that this year, believing earnestly in the goodness of a new year feels like more of a stretch to me than it used to. Forget believing in a messianic end of days. It sometimes feels like a horrible end of the world is actually just around the corner. And even if we don't feel that pessimistic, many of us still approach this new year with the same sense of exhaustion and dread with which we approached the last. In most ways, we're doing fine. We get up in the morning, go to work, see friends and loved ones. We celebrate milestones and manage to have a good time on the weekends. But in the quiet corners of our lives, doom scrolling or returning to student loan payments or lying awake at night, a slow burn of foreboding seems to pervade in our psyches. Therapists have told me that dread was a major theme for their patients this year, more so even than in the first year of the pandemic. The usual polling agencies confirm this too, with large majorities of Americans convinced that the best years of our country are behind us. My colleagues also share this, turning to, it's actually a secret Facebook page for rabbis, but they <laughs> seek solace and support from one another there and have spent most of the last year discussing how to address ongoing crises before tired, worn out congregations. And for me, I hear a version of this in the way that many wedding couples angst with me about their futures as housing prices and temperatures rise in the coming year, or rather in each year. And also in the anxiety that parents share about bringing new children into the world. One of my favorite congregants is actually convinced that society is collapsing, and he refers to me as his wartime rabbi. <laughs> Do with that what you will. He uh, introduced me that way to a stranger at the gym recently, which <laughs> raised some eyebrows. 
We may not be at war, but it does sometimes feel like it. And many of us approach our futures with increasing cynicism and sarcasm. Now, I'm not about to tell a bunch of New York Jews not to have cynicism and sarcasm in your lives, but underneath the glib jokes about how the world is a dumpster fire or commentaries about living in late capitalism is genuine fear and anger about the future, which surely complicates our intentions for goodness in the year to come. I can't say that we don't have reasons to be afraid. If anything, I think we have endless reasons to be afraid, because in some ways, the world today is scarier for us than it may have seemed when we were born. We confront, confront an avalanche of tsuris that long ago shattered our assumptions about how life was supposed to be. But this is the world we inhabit, and we have to live in it. Where we see no path forward, we have no choice but to create one. On the front of your programs are the final words of the piyut that we have now sung a couple times this morning, that poem. Solu, solu, mesilo teha, tachel shanao virchoteha. Pave, pave her paths, and let the new year and its blessings begin. The piyut, as we heard, is a medieval Sephardic text, but the more ancient phrase, solu, solu, comes from the haftarah that we will chant on Yom Kippur. God shouts out, Solu, Solu, pave, pave a pathway for my people. Remove all obstacles from the road. There, God commands that we remove all barriers to our own tshuva, our process of returning and repenting, as if we are somehow capable of removing the barriers to living full lives of goodness. The phrasing in the poem is a little more blunt. Let the last year and its curses conclude which feels more Jewish in some ways, or at least more honest. And it's certainly more relatable with so many curses with which to contend this year. As a rabbi, I can't tell you what we're going to do about avoiding nuclear war or repairing American democracy. Can't figure out how the can opener works. But I can remind you that we're not the first generation of Jews to feel frightened about our future. And as earlier generations of our people face their fears, they've sought guidance from our texts, wisdom for creating the path as we walk it, because that, I think, is our only choice. This morning's Torah reading offers a good place to start. We just read of Hagar and Ishmael confronting a major impasse in the path they'd expected for themselves. Sarah insists that Abraham cast them away, which he does and they head into the desert with just one skin of water. They nearly die of thirst. In desperation, Hagar hides Ishmael under a bush and walks some distance away. And she raises her voice and cries. She doesn't jump to judgment or explanation, but importantly, Vayeshev. She sits for a moment to understand precisely what she feels, allowing herself a visceral, embodied wail, to which God replies directly. The Talmud teaches that after the destruction of the temple, the gates of prayer were locked, and the gates of opportunity for people to express themselves in the written way no longer made sense. But the gates of tears remained open. 
Because when we express a genuine feeling like Hagar from the deepest parts of ourselves, God cannot ignore it. Whether or not we believe in a God who listens to us like that, the text emphasizes the importance of earnest feeling, which is, as our therapists know or insist, is always the baseline for change. Hagar doesn't leap to explaining why or blaming Abraham and Sarah. She expresses a feeling without judgment, which should be our goal, too, as we confront our own feelings right now. When we reach for glib expressions or cynically joke that Brooklyn will be underwater soon anyway, what we're not saying is that we're sad or angry or afraid. But being honest about our feelings to ourselves and also to others is the only way that we can make appropriate, courageous decisions about how to move forward regardless. After Hagar lets loose, the story pivots. The text says, God heard the cry of the boy, and a messenger of God spoke to Hagar, saying, Al tiri, don't be afraid. And the text concludes, Vayifkach Elohim et be'er ma'im. God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. It's one of those miraculous moments for which the Bible is well known, and a good deus ex machina really makes the story pop. But lest we think this was really a miracle, the text doesn't say that God manifested a well where there wasn't one. The 19th century rabbi known as the Malbim points out that the verb vayifkach, meaning God opened her eyes, implies that all God did was reveal the well's location. It was there all along. The only miracle was Hagar's ability to change her perspective. How have I that that should be so easy for us? It may not be. Perhaps the lesson then is that when we understand our truest needs, we're better able to address them and hopefully move forward at the very least. Despite the word miracle being associated with Jews and our holidays, it turns out the Jewish tradition is savvier than that. Our texts were written by people as anxious as we are, and our sages tend not to like magical thinking. The 13th century rabbi David Kimchi taught that God's promises are based on human beings taking every reasonable precaution not to require a miracle to save them from danger. He points us to the Talmud where we read that it is inadmissible to sit and wait for God to perform a miracle to save another life. Skeptical as we are, we tend to like this reading. Waiting for a miracle we know is a shallow assumption that everything will turn out fine. But isn't that effectively the same as the assumption that everything will be terrible? Whether we're waiting for a miracle or we're waiting for Armageddon, in either case, we're avoiding the fact that we have agency. And though we're not the sort of people who want to believe that miracles are human or who do want to believe that miracles are human and not divine, many of us are at a loss for how to claim our inherent power. This holiday insists that there is always something we can do to make our lives better. As we'll read soon in Unatana Tokef, most of life is out of our control. Who shall live and who shall die? Only God knows for certain. But the prayer can't help but give us something to hold on to. Through tshuva, repentance, utfila, prayer and introspection, and tzedakah, giving justly, we have some small say in how our lives will turn out. Though we generally can't decide how we will die, we can decide how we will live. 
And the premise of this holiday is that we can, in fact, decide how we'll play the hand we're dealt, no matter how scared we might feel at times. Amidst it all, I'm inspired by examples of people doing this all the time, despite how scary it seems to feel regardless. I think of the labor unions who organized strikes this year. A strike is never an uncomplicated path to victory, and it's usually pretty terrifying. Going without pay, uncertain about the time horizon, and of course facing the pain that led to any strike in the first place. Sometimes there are clear wins, as UPS workers found this year after voting to strike, but it is an unglamorous and famously obstructed path, as Starbucks and Amazon employees can tell you, and as UAW workers are experiencing right now. And in the case of the writers in SAG-AFTRA strikes, the workers are marching on that, on that path with an uncertain destination, with major ripple effects for other industries, as we know. They knew this going into it, but they had the courage to choose it anyway. When faced with a vote, almost 100% of the Writers Guild agreed to strike, despite how scary it was, and despite not knowing the outcome. But because at some point, having no path ahead of them wasn't an option. On a different scale, I think of the climate. The fear of climate change creeps into all aspects of our lives, and we have some sense that our recycling, protesting, and maybe even voting can be futile at times. But as most of us sit in fear of the next natural disaster or a slow creep of a heating planet, there are tens of thousands, if not more, scientists all over the world who are just as scared as we are nonetheless convinced that though we created this problem, we can fix it, or at least adapt sustainably to our new reality. I'm talking about the scientists that are working to create geothermal energy from the Earth's core, who creep closer to making this mainstream, or the projects that profitably recycle EV batteries to reduce how much new metal we mine from the Earth. And what continues to inspire scientists to explore solutions is the earnest naming of a fear shared by literally billions of people. Their initial work depended on our crying. But our crying can't now get in the way of their work. And the planet's future depends on our allowing the notion that they might, in fact, be successful. And finally, on a small, smaller scale, I encounter people all the time as a rabbi who confront their fears and take leaps toward goodness in their lives, despite having no idea where they will end up. The woman who chose to trust a fiance and get married, despite the trauma of her own parents' relationship and her prior experience with partners. The person in their mid-50s who, after decades of doing odd jobs and feeling hopeless, took out student loans to go to rabbinical school. The couple who spent their 20s and 30s in Brooklyn who had no support structure anywhere else and couldn't imagine being anywhere else, who really couldn't afford to live here either, so they decided to strike it on their own in a place where they knew no one. All of these examples include points of failure and more than a little fear. They represent nonlinear paths, but all of these examples that demonstrate people making some path anyway and refusing to succumb to despair. The whole world is a very narrow bridge, said Rebbe Nachman, but the important thing is to not be afraid. If only we could actually do that. Fear has been central to our existence as a people since our earliest origin stories. And understanding this, our tradition is obsessed with 
hopeful tales designed to help us walk the path even if it classically took the shape of wandering in a desert for 40 years. When the Israelites leave Egypt and head toward the desert, their first instinct is naturally to complain, mostly about the food. Right off the bat, as they march toward the Sea of Reeds, they look back and see the Egyptians following close behind them, and they panic. They just can't believe that any bright future is ahead of them. As they start to tremble, Moses tells them, Al-Tira'u, don't be afraid, the plural of that same phrase that God uses with Hagar. And in the next breath, he says, Hit yatsbu. Literally, it means stand yourselves upright. But the word is somewhat unusual. The tour, the 14th century commentator, reads this to mean that Moses is saying, present yourselves in an upright posture, exuding confidence, and do not appear to be afraid, even though you are. Fake it till you make it, he tells them. And after 400 years of knowing nothing but bondage, faking it may have been all that they could manage. As we know, once the Israelites are past that moment, they still have decades to go before reaching their destination. And even then, it's only their kids that get there. But for a moment, when they realize that they're on the right track, they dance. And the women dancing with their timbrels followed Miriam as she sang her song. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Sure, it's a quote from Debbie Friedman, not from the Torah, as I learned as I wrote this sermon. <laughs> <clears throat> But uh, the Mechilta wonders about that idea, wonders about that image that's presented in the Torah and in the song, and asks, where did they get those timbrels? When the people hurry out of Egypt, they don't even have time to let their bread rise, and they somehow manage to bring timbrels with them. But the Midrash answers, a handful of righteous people remained confident, even as they were enslaved, that their liberation would one day come. So they constructed timbrels and flutes. When they languished under oppression, unsure if there was any miracle coming their way, a few hopeful Hebrews had the chutzpah to build instruments just in case. They acted as if their liberation was a certainty. And so it was. I'm not here to fool you into thinking everything will be just fine. But I am suggesting that maybe we've already been fooled by our echo chambers, and by our worst insecurities. And as we move forward, these bits of textual wisdom are what give me hope, personally, and, and what sustain me through the onslaught of bad news. Despite the signs in our neighborhood arguing otherwise, the Messiah might not actually be here. <laughs> but we are. And as we're here, we know that the new year probably will include many crises and difficult decisions, moments of feeling like we can't see the horizon ahead of us on this path. But as we walk it, nonetheless, we can take a cue from our tradition. We can pause to express ourselves honestly and to listen to one another cry. We can try to find some bit of agency. We can fake it a little bit too so that we don't succumb to despair. And given that it's Rosh Hashanah, an earnest time of year, with 10 days of awe in which we work hard to chart a new path forward, we might consider making timbrels and flutes of our own, anticipating a day when we actually might 
dance. Shana Tova.